You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag, and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, and you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off, and then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content warning. The language content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories and everything in between. I'm your host, the awesomely disabled... Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this show started, everybody. 
if you want to be a part of the show and you want to be a be a part of an episode and tell your disability story, shine a light on your disability story, remember you can do so by emailing me at disabilityafterdark@gmail.com, and I will send you a link to my scheduling thing, and we'll schedule a time that works great for you and for me, and I'd love to have you. This show is for the disabled community, by someone in the disabled community, and I'd love to, to talk with you, but... I also want to open up conversations with non-disabled people to talk about their experiences navigating disability and navigating ableism and navigating understanding disability. Also to ask questions because I think part of what I love to do in my job is to educate non-disabled people. It's one of my most rewarding things to give them that light bulb moment where they can learn something about disability they never understood before. And I want to use this space as an opportunity to do that for you. So if you are non-disabled and you also want to come on the show, and you've also been listening, because I know there are some of you out there who are non-disabled who've been listening, I would absolutely love to have you. Um, so email me at disabilityafterdark@gmail.com, and we'll get you on the show. A couple of months ago on the show, I got to sit down and talk with my new friend, Dr. Laura McGuire. We've been following each other on social media for a long while now, and she's a she is a sexologist at Widener University, and she teaches a wide range of courses on sexuality there. And she just fell in love with my work, and she fell in love with what I did, and I fell in love with what she did. And she was like, I want to come on the show and share with you some of my experiences and I was like yes please so we sit down today and we talk about her experiences taking care of her grandmother after her grandmother acquired a traumatic brain injury and what it was like for her watching her grandmother lose function and watching people around her grandmother treat her differently and people around her grandmother talk about her grandmother as if she wasn't there telling her grandfather that she should that he telling her grandfather that he should go and find someone else to be with and go and find someone else to date because his wife, who was living with a TBI, no longer was there. So it was a really, really fascinating conversation. And then we talk a little bit about consent and some issues that Dr. Laura worked with some disabled students around consent. We have a really important conversation about when we teach when we talk about consent to students with learning disabilities or intellectual disabilities, we teach them that there's no education or if you if you falter, you're in trouble. And I really thought that was a really interesting point to touch on, how the way we teach consent and sexuality to students is super, super ableist and super problematic. So we talk about that plus her personal experiences, plus a whole lot more. It was a really fun interview, and I was excited to have her. She really, really was so fun to talk to. I also talked to her a little bit about, we touched a little bit about on disability grief, and I talked to her about, because she also does relationship coaching, so I also talked with her about my fears about never being in a, in a relationship because I might die relatively young, given my disability. So we go into a lot of stuff and I get to sit down and pick her brain a little bit and we had a really great time. 
And Dr. Laura McGuire is somebody that I'm really excited to introduce you to. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Laura McGuire right here on Disability After Dark. Dr. Laura McGuire, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. Hi, I'm so happy. You and I have been, been stalking each other on the Instagram for a while now and like sending each other adorable voice notes. Being like, well, what about this? And what about this? And we've been following each other for such a, about, I want to say a year almost, a year, two years, a while now. A while, yeah, exactly. Like, and I wanted to say, first of all, thank you so much for getting a copy of the handy book and for putting all that for putting that all over your socials I saw that the other day and I was like oh that's so cool so thank you so much for supporting that other part of what I do uh, we really appreciate it but for all the people who are listening who are like who is Dr. Laura McGuire can you introduce yourself tell us a little bit about what you do and then we'll go from there yeah so I'm Dr. Laura McGuire. Um, I'm a sexologist. So what is that? That is somebody who follows the scholarly pursuit of understanding human sexuality. And my work really centralizes on sexual violence prevention and response, as well as diversity and inclusion. And I focus a lot in that space on LGBTQ folks, as well as folks with disabilities. Awesome. Um, and tell me some of your identities tell me like if you could just name off some of your identities would be great yeah so um I mean I identify as non-binary and queer and multiracial multi-ethnic um I'm also a spoonie and I very much identify with um being a Quaker as well that informs a lot of my work because it really is like there's a very spiritual aspect to the work that I do around um, sexuality in general, and then making sexuality the safer, more positive experience for everyone. Forgive my uber ignorance around the the Quaker thing. What I'm picturing is the guy from the oatmeal commercials. Like, is that what you're talking about when you say you're a Quaker? Well, we, yeah, the Quaker community does not own Quaker Oats. <laughs> <laughs> but I wish we did, right? Then we would like have so much more. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're like super wealthy but no Quakers I mean they're it's a really cool um spiritual community uh the liberal Quaker community many of them are Christians but many of them aren't like yeah. there are Quagans which are Quaker pagans and oh, cool. there are Quakers who are atheists there are like all kinds of Quakers and then traditionally though like they have these Christian roots but it's really focused on like totally moving away from hierarchy. There's no pastor, there's no priest, there's no sermon in most of the services. Everyone can talk whenever they want. And then it's like very focused on action and social justice. So a lot of people know Quakers for being abolitionists during like the civil war, right? Oh, um, cool. Cause I, I, cause every time I pictured the, the, the oatmeal guy, I pictured like a very puritanical, like super right. christian like super not against super like against homosexuality against disability like against all the things and i didn't know that they were super liberal that's great yeah yeah they're check them out they're pretty cool i mean and there's actually a lot of people who do work in sex education who are quakers because it's like it blends spirituality with these other social justice pieces that's awesome um i'm curious and and i see people use 
the word spoony a lot. This is a question that I had kind of later in, in for the episode, but you brought it up and I'm just curious. What does the word spoony mean for you and why does it resonate with you? Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, it's really about being a part of a community that um, has different experiences with ability. And that is this beautiful wide spectrum. I think I personally really connect to words that um, are umbrella terms because I love not having to like tell my whole story or be very specific unless, you know, like I'm having a conversation with someone privately and I, I go into more of the details, but similar with like being a queer person, right? Yeah. I mean, I had some, I've had so many identities in that space over the years. And then I was just like, you know what? Queer summarizes the best if I don't want to do an hour long, very personal discussion on my sexuality. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that's how I feel about queer. And that's also how I feel from in my own personal life about the word cripple too. Like it's so overarching. It can mean whatever I want it to mean, but it's a nice umbrella term for how I feel about stuff. Like people can take it for what it is. But so, so like, I know that Spoonie means... Like, you know, do you have any, your energy levels? Like, what is, so like, is it, is it a way of connecting the, yourself with those communities and being a part of that? Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, for a long time, I, like so many people, it's like, it's a difficult thing to navigate where you feel like that, you know, am I this enough? Do I, do I fit into this space? Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, through the years I've had, you know, different experiences um, and, and then just really come to a place of being like, yeah, this is part of my lived experience and part of what, again, informs my work and, and educating people, you know, when, when the, opportunities arise where it's appropriate and going to be productive to talk about, Hey, have you considered this? Well, you know, that's a barrier maybe I have faced or I've seen other people face and trying to change the system. So those barriers are reduced or eliminated. Awesome. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that as a, as a disabled person to know somebody has similar barriers and similar experiences, especially when I'm talking to a doctor, somebody in, you know, the, in in that field um you're i can't remember you I, you're like a phd doctor right not a, not an md doctor yeah exactly yeah so i i have my technically it's an edp it's doctor of education which is kind of cool because a phd is a doctor of philosophy right yeah. so they focus a lot on like theoretical stuff usually and their degree is really focused on research and people with my degree it's the same level but we focus on teaching and education and learning and like, how do you educate other people about the thing that you're going to be an expert in? And so, yeah, that's, that's the that's, kind of doctor I am. <laughs> cause for a minute, cause for a minute I was like, I was going to go into this whole like medical thing. And then I was like, wait, I don't think it's, I don't think that's the right kind of doctor. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned in your questionnaire that I love so much and I was really, really curious and I wanted you to share the story is when you were growing up, you had to take care of your grandmother who had multiple disabilities. And I wanted to kind of get you to share with us, if, you, if you're comfy, to share with us what those experiences were like taking care of your disabled grandmother and how that may have influenced you in the work you do now. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's such a great thing. And it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you today because these are a lot of the stories I haven't really told before professionally um, and haven't come up in other interviews about my work. And they're things that have so shaped, you know, who I am and why I'm passionate about a lot of different things. Um, so yeah, when, when I was growing up, my grandmother, um, she had an ileostomy, she had um, I we knew she had heart conditions um, that were underlying a lot of things. And so just even like being a little kid and seeing like her ileostomy bags and knowing like, oh, so yeah, some people go to the bathroom like by sitting on it and some people empty a bag. And like at five years old, three years old, I don't even remember, you know, like the first time I was told that I was just like, okay, this is, this is normal life. Like, that's just a thing. <laughs> and, um, and then when I was about seven, we had a garage door in our house in Connecticut that was made, made of steel. It's very big garage. And my grandmother was coming in the house and the chain on the garage door snapped. Oh no. Landed in the, right in the middle of her head. And she like remained standing and they had to like pull it off her and everything. She's tough, 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 little tiny lady. Wow. Strong. And so she already had, again, like a number of like multiple medical stuff going on. But now she had a traumatic brain injury. And at first, you know, like the first few days, the first few weeks, she was just like getting a lot of headaches. But then over time, they realized this would be degenerative and this would, you know, become a dementia. And so my whole really like growing up and then she would take care of me a lot of times when my mom was at work because my mom was a single mom and she had to work a lot as a nurse. So she would take care of me. But then as she was starting to lose like her ability to remember all of her words and then her ability to complete sentences or, you know, remember how to write or remember how to do all different kinds of daily tasks, I was becoming somebody who is a stinker um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was awful. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to like color that with some, some like, yeah. Thought. yeah, it was, it was horrible. It was so traumatic because I loved her so much. We were so close. And also she was someone who loved to learn, loved to read. She won all these awards at her little office job for like being able to talk to people who no one else would could communicate with because they were so difficult like she could reach people and to then lose her ability to communicate was so cruel and on the other hand though I'm so 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 grateful that um one she always stayed at home with us um my mom and her husband my grandfather and I, we all took turns taking care of her for, she and she, she had this for, I guess it was about 15 years. And every year it would get a little worse and we would lose another thing that she was able to do. Um, but she was a full part of our life. We never, you know, kept her at home from events. I mean, she was everywhere we went. She was doing yeah. everything. Um, and my mom would always teach me because again, I was a teenager and then she died when I was in my early twenties, but she'd be like, you know, we want to make sure she has her hair done. We want to make sure she looks good. We, she wouldn't like this outfit. Like even when she couldn't 
verbally tell us, my mom would always correct anyone who said, oh, she's not there anymore. She's like, of course she is. She just can't form words, but she's completely there. And she's equally part of our life as any other member of this family. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for that because, you know, um, it, it informs how you see relationships, family, the value of people, the value of family members, you know, and a lot of people don't get that. And I think that's, that's one of the main causes of ableism is we put people aside, even within our families and don't, you know, completely. um, We don't see them as complete vessels of who they are, even if something changes. And so it's like, not at all in the same vein, but I've lost the the ability to do things over certain years. If you listen to the show, you know, I've talked a number of times about how I can't pee anymore and how I can't do certain things anymore. And I know Dr. Laura listens, so I know that you've heard me say that before, but like, I know how hard it is to feel valid when you can't do that. And so, or when you can't, when you lose something that is so precious, I can only imagine for your grandmother losing her speech and losing the ability to communicate that would like as a disabled person, I'm lucky that I can talk. That's why I have this podcast. Like that's why I do all the work that I do. I am so privileged to have that ability. If I lost it, I'd be gutted. Gutted, absolutely gutted because how the, how am I gonna do this now? How am I gonna tell people what I need? Not only what I need, how am I gonna say what I want today? Like so I can I makes me feel sad for her because I can only imagine what she wanted to say and she wasn't able to. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, another part of it that, again, I don't see a lot of like depictions of dementia or depictions of different um, illness, chronic illness and disability depict is, is that processing? Because a lot of times, you know, you're losing something. And, and I remember being, you know, maybe 10 years old and her getting to the point where she knew like there would be a point where she could no longer communicate with us. Like she was able to realize that and, and just having her sit down and cry sometimes and be like, do I, can I really not, can you not understand what I'm saying? We're like, no, it's, it's really hard right now. And she's like, wow. You know, because in her mind, everything was it's all there. And she's, she is telling you exactly what she wants, but she can't. Yeah. I can only imagine like, I have friends and colleagues who work in the disability space who are non who are nonverbal and who are totally cognitively without impairments and they're fine. But getting people to believe that they're able to communicate is a whole other process. So I can only imagine when you lose function like that, how traumatic it must have been for her. And I, I really appreciate that that. Not that I wanted you, not that I'm happy you went through it, but I am sort of pleased you went through it because you got to see somebody navigating what it feels like to have the ableism on the inside too. And how do you, like, I'm sure she was frustrated as fuck that she couldn't communicate with you. And like, it's important that you watched her cry and it's important that you saw her break down because, I mean, did that inform the way you saw the, the, the disabled experience with your clients going forward? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just then because she was, you know, fully part of our family in every single way, no matter how things progress, like also seeing how other people 
changed their acceptance of her, like people she had known her whole life suddenly saying, you know, it's too difficult to watch her in the state. We're not going to come visit anymore. Or, you know, like, yeah, they'd be like, oh, it's so disturbing that I can't understand what she's saying. And we would all, my, my, we meaning my mom and I really, we would always say to them, like, how do you think she feels? And now you're going to isolate her on top of that? Um, But in a good way, and this is something we talked about before too, my grandfather also was a major advocate and people said to him, you know, you should put her in a home. You should go out and date someone else who's able by you and like, let this go. And he was like, wow, no wow. way. No they t- way. <laughs> they told him straight up to go date someone else. They told him to, they said, she's not really there. Go date somebody else. And but she would reach for him and kiss him. Uh. Even when, you know, everything else was gone, she couldn't feed herself or, um, you know, go to the bathroom alone anymore. And, but she would reach for him. She 100% knew who he was. And he, to his credit, and many things to his credit, but he would always also say how beautiful she was. And that these things like have very much informed also how I, you know, talk to people about relationships and how I view relationships marriage because I'm like it's not about someone being able to do all these you know stereotypical things that are involved in relationship like relationships can take so many forms and are just as beautiful if not more and and again like it can be just as attractive like he looked at her and saw her soul and you know was madly in love and adoration of her I'm really glad I have the mic in front of my face because you can't see me tearing up, but it's happening. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Um, um, I don't know how to segue into the next question because that's like, that's, but I cannot believe that people that, actually, un- unfortunately, I can't believe that people that she knew her whole life turned their backs and walked away because it, it, it's proof that disability is scary. People don't know how to navigate that. So having seen those kind of things firsthand in your family, how does how has that kind of girded the work you do in your field? Yeah, I think um, you know it's really made me very vocal in one speaking about that experience. And again, the the they didn't my grandparents didn't have these words, you know, but like how they dismantled ableism in relationship constructs and. Um, and, and completely rejected, you know, these, these toxic things people were telling them. Um, and, and also really helping people understand, yeah, it's not about, I think a lot of times our modern narrative around relationships is what can you do for me? Right. And if you lose any kind of physical or emotional ability to do certain things, then you're of less value in a partnership. And that's so not true. Right. And, and again, like, and also that people deserve love. She wanted to be kissed. She wanted to be held. She wanted to lie next to him every night, even though you'd have to change the sheets five times many nights because there would be a lot of accidents. And listen, sometimes you have to change my sheets five times a night and I still want a hot dude in the bed with me anyway, figuring it out. So I get it. I understand totally. Yeah. You know, but I think, and then for a lot of people who have that experience, right. They might think, would anyone want to go to bed with me every night? Would anyone want to hold me knowing I'm, I'm going to be continuing to lose different abilities through the years? And yes, that does exist. And you do deserve that. And 
that's a huge thing we have to talk about more. I mean, one of the things that I've been struggling with, and I kind of told you this before we press record, one of the things that I've been struggling with over the last few weeks is I've been thinking a lot about my death and not so much because like I'm not, uh, my disability CP doesn't automatically mean that you're going to die young, but a lot of complications because of CP tend to mean you don't live past like 50, 60. And so I'm, I'm thinking about all this COVID stuff and thinking like, well, what if something happens and what if I contract it because some of my care staff have contracted it. And so I'm waking up at 4.30 and like having weird fever dreams about, you know, dying young and dying, you know, not being able to experience things that non-disabled people have experienced like relationships and like partnerships. And so like as somebody who works in the field of disability and education and, and as, you know, a, an accredited person in the field, what would you say to somebody who came to you and was like, I'm having feelings about dying young because of disability. Yeah. No, and I think um, we put culturally a lot of weight and importance on, again, not only what someone can do for us physically or emotionally, but like that there's longevity to this, like chronological longevity. Like it's going to be forever and forever usually means a hundred years or like, you know, (laughs) or like 85 years or like a long, long time. Yeah. And you even look at like, you know, weddings narratives and, and things. And it's always like, you know, Oh, we'll be together 50 years. I can't wait to grow old with you. I can't wait to be old people in a rocking chair. Right. Well, what if you know that that's not going to happen? Right. And I think that if somebody comes to me and they're like, you know, I don't know if I should be pursuing romantic relationships because I have this very loudly kick, uh, ticking clock, right? And I know there's going to probably not be decades a- ahead of me. Um, you know, should I still go for this? Should I still want this? Is that okay? And I think the other narrative that a lot of people have internalized is like, it would be cheating my partner if I can't guarantee them 50 years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would tell them that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, yes, it's understandable because of the cultural narratives, but it's totally rooted in ableism. And no matter how much time we have or what that's going to look like as far as our physical, emotional um, needs, that at any, any time that we have with someone to love them and give love and um, receive Like, I mean, love. I think for me, one of the things that I've been grappling with is, is um, not so much like having a partner. It's do I have the time to find somebody who will put their ableism aside or work through their ableism with me enough to want to say, yeah, I do want to be in a relationship with you for f- five years to me would seem like a very long time. Like that's not something that I've ever had to experience. So I'm waking up at night and it happened to me last night, strange enough. I woke up at like four 30 and I just had this dread of like, first of all, I was like, Oh my God, it's still the pandemic. What the hell is happening? And so like, I, I, once I calmed down from that, I woke up and I was like, well, what if I don't get to have something with somebody? I'm like, what if I am destined to be alone? Which I'm not, I'm not sad about being alone. I'm angry that those experiences have felt like maybe they've been robbed from me a little bit. And that like, I never got to do it when I was 16. I never got to go on like teenage puppy love date things. I never got to do that. So a lot of the times I feel very stunted in my 
emotional growth in terms of my relationship, what I bring to the table, because I don't fucking know because nobody's given me a chance to try. So I, I've been waking up feeling like I'm not even having dreams about it, just waking up feeling like this dread of like, how long do I have before my body says no? And then I can't, don't get to have this. Yeah, no. And I think, I think the other side of this conversation is also giving ourselves space and each other space to just grieve. Because like I was saying with my, my with my grandmother's traumatic brain injury, like it, even though there were, you know, amazing positive parts of any time that we had with her and us coming together as a family and all that stuff, it still was awful too, right? And it is awful that people are so programmed, even other Spoonies, right? To like push each other aside, to say it's too much, that, oh, I don't want to be stuck with someone who, you know, I don't know I'm going to be dealing with taking care of them. Like there's real grief there. And we have to, we have to be able to feel that. You know, there's not, and not just tell each other, oh, it's fine. Don't be upset. Like, no, give yourself space to be upset sometimes. And, um, and I think we could use more community around that. Um, that. That's something that I can't agree with more. I think, and, and I mean, I know that you and I follow each other on the social. So you see how much on a daily basis, like when I'm writing stuff, I'll talk about grief and I'll talk about, you know, we need to talk about this more. We need to talk about losing ability. We need to talk about like, what it feels like to know you're going to be alone forever or what it feels like to know that you can't have a relationship because the state says no, or you can't, or even if you try to have a relationship, somebody would make ableist comments to you and then you don't want to try anymore. Like we need to really, I think there's a huge struggle within the disability community and within, I think the people that support disabled people, even though they don't mean to, there's a real kind of chasm of like we don't want to talk about the hard stuff we want to keep everything at the surface and kind of my goal I think in 2021 with this show and with like everything that I do is no no I want to get in the valleys of the shit with you and I want to sit there and I want to talk about it because that's the stuff that I don't think a lot of us in these community in these communities we're feeling it but we don't have a language to address real true disabled grief yeah no I think that's yeah, that's so profound and it's so, it's so, so true. And I think that, um, especially with the rise of social media and inspiration porn, right? This like toxic narrative that you're only a good disabled person if you're inspiring others. Yeah. You're overcoming, right? Um, I think that feeds into all of this, right? Not being allowed to be sad or just say this, this is something I really want and I'm not going to get. And that's really, really hard for me. Um, and not trying to correct that in each other and say, oh, come on, look at the positive. But say, yeah, like, like, yeah, let's just have that space. Like, I remember last year I was having sex with a really hot sex worker. We were having a great time. And we, I was upset with, I was upset because I couldn't do something he wanted me to do physically. And I said, oh, fuck, I'm so sorry. And his knee-jerk response was, don't worry, let's focus on the things you can do. And I stopped him and said, look, you're beautiful, and I'll get back to that blowjob in a minute, but I want you to focus on, like, the fact that I'm telling you I can't do something, and I want you to just be in the space with me and grieve me, grieve that with me. Because 
it pisses me off that I can't do that thing with my body to make you have pleasure right now. And I want you to, and he was like, but why focus on the good things? And I was like, I am, but I also want to focus on this part too. And so I constantly have to remind my non-disabled friends that like, it's okay if I'm asking you to agree with me. I'm actually letting you, letting you in on an experience that you should be damn lucky to have. Because I could just say, oh, no, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Right. Exactly. Which is, which was what we often do, you know, is we're like, yeah, you know, again, there are times and spaces where I feel safe enough to really open up to someone about things I've experienced. Um, in general, there's a lot of barriers to that. Right. So yeah, if you, if someone has the privilege of hearing these very intimate personal parts of our journey, just appreciate that. Don't try to correct it. Don't try to control that narrative. Yeah. Just- just let it be what it is. Yeah. Um, one of the things you said in your questionnaire that I want to touch on, because I, I thought it was really interesting, and I get this all the time when I talk about disability. I did a tweet the other day that was like, we need to normalize that being disabled is okay. And somebody came, came back to me and said, well, why do you want to normalize it? Shouldn't we say that it's, shouldn't we talk about how it's always been there? And I was like, good point. Um, and they like, they called me on using the word normalize. And so in your questionnaire, you had said, you know, you want to build an environment where you normalize being disabled for youth. So I'm just curious, like, because I got a lot of pushback when I did it, what does normalize, what does the idea of normalization mean for you? And what does it look like for you in somebody who, as somebody who works in the education field, talking about this stuff? Um, and, and how does normalization kind of, uh, how, how does it manifest for you? Yeah, wow, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, you know, normal normal is, of course, like this, this really problematic concept, right? Because if there's normal, then there's abnormal, then there's other, right? Um, however, I think that... Um, like what I, what I mean by really is helping people understand like the spectrum of human experience as being totally positive, natural, good, so that it is included, right? Um, you know, and, and a lot of times people, especially with disability or chronic illness, they don't think of it as something that pretty much every human being will experience at some point in their lifetime. Yeah. Right. It's always like, again, othered. Well, this is, you know, not part of the normal human experience or it's something only for old people or, you know, Oh, it would be the worst thing if it happened instead of, again, this is just part of the spectrum of the human experience. Um, And so I think like, especially with sex education, we don't talk about ability. Um, whether, you know, any kind of ability, physical ability, mental, emotional. Well, I mean, actually, I, uh, I'm i going to challenge you a bit there because we do talk about ability. We don't talk about disability, period, full mm-hmm. stop. We talk, about, we talk about ability every day. We don't talk about disability. And so, like, I, I find it so interesting because you're not the first person that when, they, when they're talking about disability, they'll automatically, and without even thinking, they'll say ability instead of disability. So every time I hear that now, I'm like, we switch the word to disability because yeah. I think it's so interesting how people in their quest to be as inclusive as possible 
and I'm not saying you did this with like any forethought, but like when when people say ability, where does disability come in? Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think that, yeah, it just points to, again, the, the language that we we are taught in and that, you know, is put into the materials yeah. that we use and everything, right? Still centralizes, you know, what is the person's ability instead of just directly saying disability. Yeah. And yeah, it, and, and, and you know, it's one of the things I, I love to talk about and I love to always be uncovering in myself and that you bring up so many times in your work is that that unconscious, you know, bias narrative that we all have internalized and we don't even, unless somebody says like, wait, what about this? We're like, oh yeah, how'd that yeah, get like we don't even We don't even realize it happened. And so like, I just think the term, especially for your work, like yeah. I think saying disability more just for your, the clients you see and the people you support, I think, I mean, say whatever makes them feel comfy. If they want to, if they want you to use ability, obviously go there. But like, if if they say you know disabled, I would follow with okay, disabled is great. Let's use that because I think so often in in a lot of educational fields when we're talking about disability or when we have people who who are learning about disability through through like educational lenses, it's very much disability is erased from the narrative and it's replaced with ability level, which is code for disability, but nobody's saying disability. And and that's such a good point. And I think one of my challenges as an educator has been, and probably why still a lot of my language focuses on that is pushback from people I'm working with who still have a ton of internalized ableism where they don't want to identify as being disabled. I still say for young people that I work with and even some older adults, they might say they have a diagnosis, but they won't say they connect with it or they don't want to to talk about these kinds of things. And so I still have to, it's like slowly easing them into a place of comfort with that. But I mean, there's just so many challenges you know, unless, unless they've had a lot of exposure to these things and they come to that level of comfort, you know, it's like, as an educator, then is there a way that you can expose them to these things or do you expose them to this, to the, like the positive parts of disability and the positive parts of being a disabled person and actively saying, I am a disabled person, full stop. Like, can you take them on that journey or do you feel like you, you're not allowed to as an educator because you don't want to like. No, I think, well, and you know, I've worked in so many different environments doing sex ed. And I think there are the, my, my favorite times are when I get to work with, especially young people who are really open to being challenged, right? They don't have so many levels of cognitive dissonance around like, no, I've always heard this was a bad thing and I won't accept that, you know, yeah. uh, sometimes from, from, older generations, but like a lot of young people, yes, they will go on that journey with me. And that is one of the things I used to teach in middle and high school. And that was my favorite part of that kind of job because I worked with them for years, 
right? And so you would get all of this time to unpack all of those layers. Because first you meet all the resistance, not just around this, but a lot of aspects of human sexuality, right? Where they're like, no, I've heard that's gross. Ooh, I won't talk about that. Oh, I won't accept that. And then, you know, slowly you, you expose them to more resources, more different ideas, you challenge some of their assumptions, and then you see this evolution. And I think in sex education, that needs to be, you know, something that we have a conversation around for all students in all grades, you know, where we're talking about human sexuality. Um, because a lot of times educators are told, oh, we'll give you resources for students with disabilities if, you know, you're teaching. If they're at risk or if they're going to be right. going to be abused or if. They're going to be like, and, and I've said this so many times on this show and I'll say it again. Like the only time that we talk about sex and disability in the discourse is if the disabled person is going to be raped or going to be abused or going to be hurt or is at higher risk, which listen, we all know the numbers of, of disabled people being abused are higher. And I'll get to another question I have on that in a second, but we all know the numbers are higher, but we can also teach disabled people that, there is a chance you could be abused as anybody could in any sexual relationship, but also there's a chance that you could have the best fucking time and you can also like have pleasure. And I wish that there were more resources for you and for all of us as educators that anchored sex as a pleasurable event for disabled people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, really, I think also, you know, again, exposed, all students to that this is this is totally healthy normal part of life right not saving it for oh the special ed class because a lot of times in the quote-unquote mainstream classes as they'll be designated in a public school they will never touch on this stuff right and then it's it's all about really segregation in sex ed and saying yeah. these students deserve this information these students don't need to ever worry about it and all it does is create further foundation for ableism in relationships and sexuality yeah huge barriers and so one of the things i know that you and you actually reached out to me with a double email and we're like i actually i do stuff you do stuff around um domestic violence and and disability and, and i you mentioned in in your email to me that you want to talk about how how you know disabled people have trouble reporting abuse and trouble getting you know escaping abusive relationships and can you share with us how your work navigates that and and the things you you've come up against in dealing with that kind of stuff yeah absolutely so you know i mean i think there's been more and more conversations over the past i would say 10ish years um around, you know, consent education, interpersonal violence, particularly on college campuses, because in 2011, um, there was this letter that got sent out from the Obama administration saying that these conversations need to be centralized in um, campus prevention efforts, right? Really talking about consent and identifying abusive dynamics, all this stuff, Um, which is great. But then, you know, a lot of these barriers to reporting, to getting support, to asking questions, right? Like, hey, is is this a violation of consent? Or like, how do I navigate consent if, you know, I, I have different modes of communication? Um, because they still, 
were giving these talks from, you know, again, this very able-bodied, able-bodied, you know, and white and cisgender and heterosexual framework. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have had a number of experiences starting out in that field and starting programs. The first job that I had where I really focused on that was at the university of Houston and starting their first sexual violence prevention and education program. And we served 43,000 students, right? So there were tons of students with all different kinds of disabilities. And I would, would try to, you know, bring this up. And again, it was always like, well, that's a special interest issue or, you know, this. No, no, that's. <laughs> like, no, it's not. It isn't. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've been fortunate that since starting my consulting practice, one of the reasons I wanted to do that was to, so that no one could tell me, no, that's a special interest issue and we're not interested, right? I could do what I wanted, um, is now going and training in, in particular Title IX offices on both domestic violence, sexual violence, all of these different um, topics that intersect and discussing how one of the issues that comes up a lot is also where students will be flagged for harassment or stalking behaviors and can be kicked out of college or can have, you know, even criminal charges against them. And it really, a lot of times is an underlying issue of just difficulty with communication, understanding social cues, understanding that someone's uncomfortable. Right. So so, yeah. So there may be a student with, with, with intellectual disabilities or, um, cognitive impairments or just just you know have never experienced that before who may be really like intense and really wanting to engage with somebody and the other person not having any experience with disabilities might think oh they're stalking me right exactly and we've seen this come up and up again and again especially with some of the pendulum swinging in this area, right? So at first there was a lot of conversation, 2011, and then probably till around 2016, when sadly it went the other way, (laughs) where there were so many people reporting everything and saying, I want this person kicked out of school, they're a dangerous person, right? And not looking at, well, what, what is the context of what's going on? And so that's where I do a lot of work with restorative practices. And a lot of the students I would work with you know, for example, I mean, real life situation was the student was following, um, you know, a classmate online, texting them a hundred times a day, quite literally, you know, sending 10 page emails every day. And because they thought that was a good way to show their genuine interest in them. And the other student was saying, you know, I was giving them all these signals and stuff that I was uncomfortable and I wasn't engaging with what they were doing and they wouldn't leave me alone. And I, you know, and they went to the police and they're like, I'm, I'm going to charge this person with stalking. And they also went to the Title IX office, which is where I got involved. And when I sat down with this, you know, young person, they were like, how, how many times can I text? Like they did something as simple as that. They're like, I don't know when it became harassment. I don't know when it started to make them feel like I was stalking them. I thought I was showing them that I cared. And like, after a while we, we kept talking again. So it's a process to really walk through, well, what are examples of what is appropriate for a lot of people and what would feel uncomfortable? And they were like, can I text at least seven times in a row? And I was like, Let's go with one. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Yeah, maybe one, maybe two, and then maybe yeah. Right. But you know, 
I understand that that feeling because um, when I first started working with my sex worker, who we're, we we have a great relationship now, but like when I started working with him, I would text 20, 30, 40 times a day because I wanted I wanted to show my genuine interest, and I also wanted attention. And he eventually was like, "You can't keep doing this because." I have a life and I need my space and you know I I backed off then but but I think that's not to discount people who are actually stalking and being inappropriate but for people who who have um, neurodivergences and who have different disabilities and or who haven't had experiences to date and fuck up and try things and be told no plainly when you're a teenager like when you don't have that experience, you're a fresh little bird coming into this world, trying to figure it out, hoping that if you just bludge them over the head with your, your kindness, they'll follow you. And so like, I can understand from the disabled student's point of view, how frustrating it could be to be trying to show affection, which can be hard for a lot of us to show affection because of the way that ableism tells us we're not supposed to. So um, I can imagine how difficult it would be for the disabled student to be told, no, then you feel like, well, the, how am I supposed to connect then? How am I supposed to like build relationships if I, if I can't? And I, you know, I, I talk about on my show a lot also about how, how texting and all those things and all the technology we have now is more comfortable than being on the phone or talking or like, so yeah, like I wouldn't send a 10 page email, but I would send like 50 texts. So like, I get it. But I think, you know, there does need to be a hard line, but I can imagine for you as an educator, it must've been so hard to hear the student like want to give all this affection and you having to be like, no, maybe not. Right. No, it is hard. And I, I think the hardest part was, you know, very much what you're saying, like this, this student had no previous education around any of this, right? And so it's either no education or you're in trouble. And that's when maybe you'll get some information, which is terrible, right? I mean, we don't, and even where there are like some social skills classes and um, social stories, education and stuff, very rarely do they really talk about intimacy and sex and relationships and dating and feelings and you know and how to navigate that um and that's that's crucial but the other aspect of it too is you know barriers and reporting when students do want to come forward a lot of times and again we, we see this a lot with neurodivergence where people have different ways that they need to tell what happened to them and traditionally again especially i have a lot of experience on college campuses a lawyer comes and shows up and has a list of questions and is like, tell me this, tell me that time of day, what were you wearing? Where were you going? What did they say exactly? Right. And it's like the person cannot communicate. Process all of that. Yeah, process that. And I mean, just for anyone that's difficult, but then again, you add on disability and that additional barrier. And instead, what I try to teach people is you have to give people multiple options and modes of communication and time to process and, you know, write things out and 
sometimes people um, have preferred, you know, drawing something and then telling the story, or they need to be interviewed in very short spurts multiple times, right? Not one long interview. But again, a lot of this go is just something that many of these people in these roles have little to no awareness of. Yeah. And they so don't understand the harm they're causing. Like aside from, you know, aside from just telling disabled people that there's a risk if they have sex, they might get pregnant, they might get abused. We also need to give to give lawyers and the legal system cues on how to properly impart, properly assist disabled people who do come forward with abuse things on how to do it properly so that they get the information they need. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a really interesting topic because I, I've just started this certification on trauma-informed law. And that's that's part of what we talk about um, because attorneys and paralegals and stuff, they, they have zero hours required for any kind of inclusion classes in most law schools or, um, or understanding psychology or trauma or processing, none of that. Right. So they have this framework that they're working from and they're like, this is all I got. Uh, I don't know why people are so difficult to work with. And we're like, no, actually, there are tools we can give you to make this a lot better for everybody. I think it's so much better. Yeah. Yeah. So take note, people who help people through domestic violence things. Make sure if you're dealing with somebody who, you know, has a disability or even if you don't know, treat them, treat it much more seriously than just a rote discussion that you have to write down and get all the facts. Remember that there are people with disabilities who need more time. And especially when dealing with trauma like that, you would need more access. You definitely have an access need for time and patience. So yeah, that's an area we definitely need to talk about. I'm so happy you brought that up today. Um, Dr. Lerma McGuire, as a Spoonie, what is one part of your experience as a Spoonie that scares you that we can explore today? Mm. Uh, I think I think one thing that often scares me is just um, professional navigation and needs um, if you disclose that you need accommodations. I mean, there's... And I guess kind of goes back into the legal space. There are things that are technically on the books that say that everyone should be able to come forward and say what they need and that reasonable accommodations will be followed, right? That's, that's on the end of every job application that we ever apply for. But I think for myself, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to perform um, certain kinds of hours worked, right? We're so rewarded in a lot of professional fields, including academia and, and other spaces that I navigate where, you know, the person who, oh, their car was here first thing in the morning. Oh, and they leave last at night. Oh, and they, you know, were able to run across the, you know, department floors and get this thing done is so rewarded. And those people make more money and get promoted and get the different titles. And for those of us who can't do that, <laughs> there is this incredible, you know, feeling of having to somehow meet that, even if it is incredibly detrimental to our physical or emotional health. 
Yeah. And that I find that very scary because again, as much as I hear people say that, you know, that wouldn't be used against anyone. I personally, when I worked for organizations, not seen that to be true. And it may not be used against you in a public forum, but we all know what people think when the doors are closed and what they assume when, when they may not be blasting it on the social media that Dr. Laura can't work as, as quickly as the other person over here. But we all know what they think about when they're, when they're, when they're. Hold on one second. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Good. Um, yeah. So we all know what they think about when they're not in a public forum with you. And they all know how, we all know how people presume to know how you sh- should be behaving when you're, when they're not in a public forum. So I know how stressful that can be. And I'm sorry that like in your professional career, you've had to brush up against that kind of ableism. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, having more conversations about career advisement um, for people with disabilities is huge, right? About just even how to be able to set those professional boundaries. There's so much pressure. I, I, I've had one job in particular where they um, gave me a phone and they wanted me to be able to answer it anytime. And the other people on the team would brag about, oh yeah, I got four hours of sleep last night. You know, I was up till midnight getting this report done. And they were like, oh, you're you're so amazing. That's so great. And I was like, yeah, I can't do that. Nor do I think it's even okay. I don't think it's really healthy to live like this. Um, Not to have boundaries at all. And then it was interesting though, like when I went to another job and they were trying to have somebody take a phone, same kind of situation. And I did set that boundary. I was like, no, I asked it in the, now I ask it if I go to an interview, I'm like, does this require me to be on call? Does this require me to have a work phone? Cause I will not take it, you know, but that that's hard, especially again, when you're trying to get into a field, you're trying to have some kind of um, security in that space. Like saying no is really, really hard. But yeah. It's extremely hard. And, and I think, you know, that, and is that part of why you kind of branched out into your private practice? Because you were like, I want to, I want to be able to do the things without having the, the whole world bearing down on me, wanting me to finish this right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really was. Um, you know, and I, I've become such an advocate for entrepreneurship and freelancing because of that, right? Because I see a lot of people who need, have needs that, the you know nine to five model simply doesn't allow for does not allow for also doesn't value the unique strengths um that having these different experiences brings to the table um again they're seen as a weakness or a problem or something that they have to work around instead of what how do we you know celebrate this and and the value that you bring as somebody who has experienced the world in maybe a, a way that these other folks haven't Um, And so, yeah, being able to create those spaces, also being able to then hire my friends, right? And like bring them on board for stuff. And I know I've reached out to you and I'm like, I'm hearing about a project, you know, because 
yeah, then, then we get to lift each other up and set our own rules and set our own boundaries and say, hi, if you hire me, this is how I'll be available. This is the wait time that you'll need to have. This is, you know, the respect that you'll need to have for my boundaries. And that's it. You yeah, either like you, you saw my email, my email signature today that was like, here's what, you know, I'll need 48 hours to maybe get back to you. Or if you want a fast response, text me. Like I make very clear in my work now that like, because I work primarily for myself um, and I do freelancing for a bunch of different places. Like I'll tell them, this is what I can do for you. And I'll be, it'll be the deadline you want. My might not be there, but I'll do my best. <laughs> but I'll, and if I can't do that, then, then maybe I'm not the guy for you. Exactly. Exactly. And I think again, more, more resources and education. There are resources out there about how to get that nine to five job, but not a lot about entrepreneurship for people with disabilities. Yeah, 100%. And if you do, if you do, I find if you do talk to somebody about disability entrepreneurship, um, I almost said a mix up word that was not that. Uh, If you do talk to somebody about wanting to start your own business, They'll say, like when I wanted to start my business and I went to somebody and said, here's what I do. They go, oh, no, that's just a hobby. That's, mm. not, a, that's not a real job. And so you're immediately discounted when you say, I want to do speaking. I'm a speaker. That's what I do. They go, oh, that's not real. Wow. Yeah. So I get it completely. Um, Dr. Laura McGuire, this was such a fun all over the place interview. And I'm so glad we got to sit down today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Is there any final things you want to let the disability after dark audience know about? Yeah, well, I would just um, encourage folks to connect with me. Um, my website is drlauramaguire.com. Um, my handle is at drlauramaguire um, on Instagram, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm sure my name and everything will be spelled in the show notes so people can find that. But, um, you know, at, I'm always expanding the resources that I have and trying to offer more education to both people in professional fields and folks who want to do more advocacy in their communities. Um, so I'd love to hear anyone's feedback thoughts, or if those are the things they want to bring to their community, because there is so much work to be done. And the more we connect and collaborate, you know, the more we can accomplish. It's exciting. Awesome. Dr. Laura McGuire, thank you so much for taking the time today and for coming on Disability After Dark. You are the third recording I've done for the new year. So yay, cool. Awesome. I don't know when this will air, but thank you so much for coming on today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. Well, that's another beautiful episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. Thank you so much for sticking around and for listening and being there for every episode of the show. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com and you can book me for talks and see more of what I'm doing. You can also follow me on my Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza underscore. That's where I do a lot of my disability justice and social justice stuff around disability, have a lot of great conversations around disability, and try to make disability accessible to everyone there. So follow me there. If you want to follow the podcast, you can download it on any podcast player, as well as you can go to our Twitter, our Disability After Dark Twitter, 
disaftdarkpod on Twitter. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to support the show, again, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark to pledge as little as $1 a month or $5 a month. Also, please, wherever you listen to your podcasts, leave us a five-star review. It really helps getting getting the show noticed. Also, if you want to be on the show, pop me an email at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Let me know your suggestions for show ideas, things you want to hear on the show, stories about disability that you want a light shot on. Thank you so much for listening. I'm, of course, your delectable host, Andrew Gerza. Let's stay comfy, cozy, and crippled, and we'll be back soon. Thanks, friends. Bye. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Drew Gerza and Wheels on the Ground Productions. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2020-2021